0: Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast. This week we examine theology, its traditions, inner conflicts and future. Our speakers take us from New Hampshire and Westminster to the streets of Cape Town and that's where we'll begin. In 2009, former Archbishop Desmond Tutu brought his own inimitable style, grace and zest for life to the festival. In this first clip he talks about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission assembled after the end of the apartheid era and how its interfaith partnership and spirituality help support victims through the hearings and provide witnesses with closure. He talks to Peter Florence.
1: How applicable is that interfaith togetherness to other conflicts that you now advise on through the Council of the Elders?
2: Well, I would certainly hope, I mean, that, uh, you know, people Have sometimes glibly said because of September the 11th, uh, Islam is a is a violent faith, and and one has to keep saying Christians are the last people to say that. You know, I mean, we we speaking to other. I mean, we uh, burned. Witches, we burnt those we said were uh, heretics at the stake. We had the... I'm mean, just think of all of the wars and then more recently, Holocaust, wasn't, it wasn't pagans, it was Christians. The people who were the perpetrators of apartheid were not heathen. They said they had the support of the Bible. Crusades. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, 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 we ought to be a great deal more modest uh, and, 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 and actually tread very carefully Uh, Kofi Annan, just before he left uh, uh, being Secretary General uh, appointed, it it, it had a rather pretentious title, uh, a group of us called the high level group um, uh, of the, uh, it spoke about the alliance of civilizations, not the clash of civilizations. And, and we were a diverse group, but can you believe it? I mean, we had uh, Sheikh Khatami, the former president of Iran. Uh, you mentioned the groups, we had, uh, we had them. It was an incredible spread. Can you believe that we actually produced a unanimous report And Kofi Annan summed it up in this way. The trouble is not the faiths. The trouble is the faithful. There are good Christians and there are very bad Christians. There are good Muslims. Are very bad Muslims. I mean, have you have you ever met the Dalai Lama? No, no, <laughs> no. no, no. Well, <clears throat> uh, I think he's one of the holiest people I've ever met. Uh, he's been in exile over fifty years. He's one of the most serene people uh, you could ever imagine. And uh, bubbling with joy, actually mischievous. Uh, You know, sometimes when we are together and I say, oi, oi, (laughs) the cameras are on us. Try to behave like a holy man. But you know, there are some of us who imagine that when, when the Dalai Lama appears before God, God will say, oh, Dalai Lama, oh, you're such a fantastic guy, man. You really are a wonderful chap. What a shame you are not a Christian. <laughs> Crazy. Most of us actually think God is a Christian. I mean, God is not a Christian. <sighs>
0: <laughs> Tutu went on to speak passionately about how worldwide prayer physically buoyed his spirit and sustained his faith during the darkest days of the apartheid regime and how we continue to hold on to that conviction in the midst of terrible violence and oppression.
1: How, through the death of Steve Biko, through the death of Chris Haney, you maintained, with all the support and prayer in the world, how you maintained the conviction and the hope that good would prevail
2: well yes i mean you you started off by by saying i we had the the support um, and then yeah i mean i my own life experiences i i believe uh, helped a great deal i worked for the world council of churches um for about three and a half years, I was working for something called the Theological Education Fund. And our offices were in Bromley, in um, Kent. Uh, And we were a very diverse team. There was somebody from uh, Malaysia uh, who was born on mainland China. There was somebody from uh, Brazil uh, we we were a very very team and our our postman came from Taiwan uh, and i was exposed for the first time there to liberation theology and and very soon thereafter i went to the united states uh, and encountered black theology uh, and and realized then much more than i had previously just how explosive how revolutionary uh, our faith is how revolutionary i mean like dynamite our our bible is uh, and uh, uh, and then i i i also was very blessed uh, to to have met people like Trevor Huddleston, who was a major influence on my life, uh, and then being trained for the priesthood by a religious community, uh, who made it quite clear that for them, the priority was always the spiritual, but it was a spiritual that did not uh, quarantine you uh, from from life it was precisely because you you had this encounter with God in prayer, in the Eucharist, in retreats and quiet days, in meditation that you turned uh, to, to to have a concern uh, for especially those who were God's uh, favorites, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the weak, the poor. Um, and It is a fantastic thing, actually. I mean, you know, in the midst of all of that darkness um, that we had, to be able to tell people that, you know, we were worshiping a God who was uh, the, the God of this Exodus, uh, who said, "I have seen, I have heard, and I know, and and I will come down." Uh, I mean, you. It was almost as if the Scriptures had been written directly and especially for us. You know. Uh, I mean, when you when you when you want to oppress people, the last thing you should give them is the Bible. You ought not to give. That. I mean, if you, if you want to succeed, don't. You know, don't give them that because where you had people say in their ideology, the thing that invests people with a worth. Is a biological irrelevant skin color. Um, and then the Bible comes along and he says, no, ah, ah. <laughs> no, 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 no. What you are saying means it is not a universal possession skin color. Not everybody is black, you know, uh, most are. Uh, (laughs) But it is the fact that we are created in the image of God. And that is a fantastic assertion that I, I, little I, am God's representative. You know, I I am a God-carrier. That, that was fantastic. I mean, when you told people. <laughs> I, I, when I was General Secretary of the SHG, I was also uh, rector of a small little parish in Soweto. Most of my congregation were not very important people. And, and I, I would say to them, Mama, uh, when you walk down the street and they ask you, hey, who are you, you see? Me. I'm God's partner. I'm God's, I'm God's representative. And, and you could actually see the people in the congregation uh, sit up a little more uh, and getting their shoulders a little squarer and, and going out of church, uh, carrying their heads, a little higher, uh, because we, we had this incredible faith, this faith that said, our God is not blind. Our God is not deaf. Our God is not stupid. Our God knows. And this God is, is going to come down. Uh, and when we still had Nelson Mandela and the other people in jail, uh, Yeah, it sometimes seemed like uh, a pipe dream and then God came down and God opened the prison doors.
0: Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor was the former Archbishop of Westminster and the head of the Catholic Church in England and Wales. In 2015, he visited Hay and spoke to Rosie Boycott about the role of a cardinal and the selection process of a new pope.
3: What does it mean to be a
4: cardinal? what is being a cardinal well well first of all the most important thing about being a cardinal is that you elect the pope there isn't any other there are other duties but that's the main one so that when the pope dies or retires or as as resigns as bishop uh, as pope Benedict did then you gather together uh, with the other cardinals to vote in his successor and it's also quick really the pope dies and you go or resigns and you go to rome and uh, if there's a funeral, there's a funeral within five days. And then another week, and then you elect the new, the new Pope. So there's no, there's, there's no hanging around, really. In a way, I suppose it's because for the Catholic Church, Peter, the Pope, is very important. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to be too long without one. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so, uh, I mean, I've been out for two conclaves, but I didn't go into the one that elected Pope Francis because I was just over 80. And when you're over 80, you don't go in, but I was there for all the meetings before. Of course, I was there for the Pope Benedict and his uh, election in, uh, in 2005. It was extraordinary. So what, what happens? Well, after all the conversations before of the Cardinals, we, 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 we go in very solemnly into the Sistine Chapel. And if any of you haven't been to the Sistine Chapel, it really is very wonderful. And so there were 117 of us. And do you, do you have chairs? Is it? Oh, yes, you've works. got special chairs. Comfy uh, ones. Comfortable. Yeah. So, so. Okay. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we, we, uh, uh, we go in and then we have a prayer and somebody gives a little talk. And then the youngest wow. or the junior cardinal says, Exilent Omnis, everybody out. So the, the, the ushers and the preacher, and the master, they all go out, and then he goes up and he shuts the door. A thud. And then I, lo- I remember looking round at the other 116 and thinking to myself, one of us is going to go out of this with a different colored cassock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, uh,
3: very strange thought. So then
4: you go up one by one, uh, to, very solemnly, with a, your, your little ticket to put your name on, and you give it to the put it in a, a, a big urn that's on the, in front, just in front of the, the Michelangelo okay. last judgment. So it's a pretty right. solemn yeah, affair. You don't, you, say be, before, you don't want to be telling a fib at that well, point. Well, exactly, because he's looking down at you. <laughs> 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 anyway, but you put it in and you go back. And then the, the scrutineers, three cons, read out the votes, whoever gets them. So you, you've got your little list. And, and with regard to Pope Benedict, I remember it so well. It went on, and it was quite a quick election. And after the the third vote, his, he was getting cardinal Ratzinger. And
3: how, how much time had elapsed at this point?
4: Two days only.
3: So you went out in the... I mean, how long does each vote so take several hours? Oh, it takes
4: about an hour and a half to two hours. So the two votes in the morning, two votes in the evening. Right. So the, the last one, though, when, when he had already got about 60 votes, so it looked yeah. a bit pretty and it went up and up. When it reached 75, there was a huge hush. All he needed was two more votes. Right. And uh, so we, uh, we waited, there were votes for others, and then he went 76. You could have heard a pin drop, then he went to 77. Cardinal Ratzinger, another one, and everybody clapped, you see. So then he went on for the rest of the voting, and then at the end, the senior cardinal went up to him and I can still see it he was sitting on the edge and said your eminence you have been elected as supreme pastor of the catholic church do you accept now he could have said no has anyone ever said no I don't. I know some people have said no before that point Right. but he, he said I accept as the will of God and then he said what name do you take and immediately he said benedict so he must have kind of thought about it the night before <laughs> Has 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 everybody do you well, think between you about and me, Rosie, and I you. think every cardinal had a name up his sleeve just okay. in case, you know. And <laughs> um, what? What? Uh, and you? Well, <laughs> well, my my, <laughs> I had two names up my sleeve. I had uh, I, I had uh, Gregory, who said Augustine, and I had Adrian, who was the only English pope from <laughs> from back from. He goes back to 1100 and something. In, uh, wow. uh, but then in the middle of the night, <laughs> the night before, I woke up and I thought to myself, what about Cormac I? Is there lobbying?
3: I know that's not a very pleasant word, but I mean, are there, there factions you know, wanting Benedict, wanting Ratzinger as well?
4: There's discussions. It's okay. more than that. Diplomatic there, discussion. Well, there's usually only about f- five or six candidates, and the cardinals talk around. Uh, and, I mean, uh, for that election, I had uh, a, a group of cardinals at the English College, all very secret, and somewhere else I had another one at the American College. and so uh, Especially the English-speaking cards are quite numerous. And so naturally we talked about who right. were who, who the candidates, who did we think. And, of course, f- for that election, Pope John Paul had, had such a long... Pontificate. Nobody had been at a conclave before. This was something entirely new. Wow. They, were all, wow. they were all dead, you Right. Say, uh, who had been. Or there. over 80. All oh, dead, or over 80, yes. Right. yes. All the How amazing. Very upset. Over, over eighty were Over 80 are about 30 or 40. Uh.
3: So at, at that point, the, the famous thing happens and the, the white
4: smoke goes up. And the white smoke. There's a little funnel at the side of the, the Fistine Chapel and they've got some stuff they put in and when comes for white smoke, there's another, and it goes out. And
3: do you hear a great roar from outside? No, you don't
4: hear, but uh, you sort of after know about... It. it is amazing how the rat he was, went out, and there's a, a Vatican tailor outside with three cassocks, large, medium, and small. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and he, um, yeah. Yeah. he came back then after about ten minutes, and it was amazing. You see, whether you voted for him, whether he was your candidate, doesn't matter he been transformed. He, once he accepts, once he's chosen him, he's pope. There's no ceremony. So he came back out in his white cassock and sat in the middle. And we all went up and kissed his ring and swore our loyalty to him and to his office. Very moving. And Very after moving. that, we, he spoke for a while. And then he said, "I better go out and say hello to the people outside." And of course, we went out, and uh, he was in the middle. And a great roar went up because the, the square was absolutely packed. I was in the next window to him. You know. Luckily I'm tall so I threw another few cars out of the way and I managed had to get this wonderful view of the, the announcement of a new Pope. It was very moving.
0: At the same time Murphy O'Connor became Archbishop, the Catholic Church worldwide became engulfed by the sexual abuse scandal. Murphy O'Connor reflected frankly on the mistakes he made and how he responded to the crisis.
4: I think I'd like to say, first of all, something perhaps I wouldn't have said or understood to have said 20, 30 years ago, uh, to think, first of all, the victims and how important it is to listen to them and uh, uh, to their story and the the anger and the pain that Mm -hmm. they've suffered. And and, uh, so that's the first thing I'd like to say. I'd like to say, I suppose, that 30 years ago, when this priest, uh, more than 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, it was like a learning curve. Uh, I knew, obviously, that child abuse was wrong and removed him from the parish. But uh, now, under the, the new regulations, uh, he would be go to the social services and the police automatically. Yeah. But then I don't think uh, bishops did that. Uh, maybe not, not, only, not only bishops in ordinary society. Um, so I don't think we were aware of, of the... A, of the addictive nature of pedophilia and also of the terrible damage that's done to victims. Now I know much more about that.
3: But you were aware enough, as I say, to move this particular priest. I mean, were... OK, this is a... Uh, was there, it has been you know, said about the church, that, that the instinct was to put the, the good name of the church before, uh, well, certainly the victim or justice...
4: Well, I don't think it's, I don't think, I can't remember sort of thinking of just the good name of the church. I thought, this man is damaging children. I moved him out, put him to a therapy center. Mm-hmm. And then uh, to my shame, when he came back to see me months later, and begged on his knees with tears, well, could I give him anything? And I looked at the reports, and the reports. Uh, one of them said, "He well, he mustn't go into a parish, but he could go to a place where there were children. And that's why I made the grave mistake of sending him to, to Gatwick mm-hmm. Airport. I think he did abuse uh, again. Uh, and uh, so it has been, as I say, uh, a learning curve. And I think what we need to do now, when we have the structures, that if there's any allegations for child abuse or... Uh, then it goes to the police and so, so, so. But I do think, and not just in the Catholic Church, I think everywhere there's got to be a a culture of what I call safeguarding. And and we see from recent developments that is necessary. And so uh, parents and people in general in the towns and villages and cities have got to be aware that uh, this is a terrible thing. And any signs of it, uh, uh, action has to be taken.
3: And, and you, you instigated a, a big judicial review, didn't you, I into did, yes, your uh, own church practices. Uh, has that been adopted by the church in general, or was that something that just in the UK? I mean, it was a very, it seemed to be a very brave and good yes, thing to do. Yes, I asked
4: Lord Nolan to. Yes. And, and, and his regulations were very clear that he had 76 recommendations yeah. adopted by all our bishops must be reporting an on any to the to the police. There, there, there must be care for victims. Uh, students for the priest must be carefully monitored before. Had all these very good, sensible things. Um, and now I think they've done slightly different, but the same basic things in Ireland and in the United States, but also elsewhere. And now Pope Francis has taken further steps, appointed a commission to make sure that in every country these kind of regulations are in place.
0: The role of women in the church has been a contentious cross-faith issue. Murphy O'Connor expressed his ideas on the ordination of women priests and went on to explore the question of contraception and celibacy within the Catholic Church.
4: The change in the Catholic Church since I was a boy is extraordinary. But now in every parish there will be women who minister, who read in the church, who minister Holy Communion, who... Uh, do all sorts of things in management in the parish, and are very much part with the priest in uh, the structure and and the way which the parish nurtures. So that was wouldn't have been so uh, when when I was young, and and indeed, people have said, well, there ought to be more women in Rome near the Pope, and I agree, and so does Pope Francis, right. and uh, so I think there will be more women. I think the key question, which I think you're going to ask, why can't then we have women priests? Well, that's not a Social question. It's much more a theological question because ever since well, from our, the, the structure of the, the church is that ever since the time of the Lord, priests have always been men, and this and the Pope has felt two popes have said very clearly, if not three, that they haven't the authority to change what has been a constant tradition of, of the church, and, uh, and and of course. Women, I do think, need and should have a greater part in participation of the church. And their voices are very, I, can, I really mean this, their, their voice and their experience and their sensitivity, hugely important, and which should be used more and more.
3: And, but did St. Peter actually say the church must be administered as such by men? Was it, does it go back that
4: far? Well, it does go back that far. There's never been, up until, there's never been... But it's based,
3: it's based on tradition rather than a doctrine.
4: Well, it is a doctrine in the sense that priests are, by ordination, not just preachers, but also a minister of the Holy Eucharist. Now, if that... So if that Priest is the church cannot uh, ordain a woman because of this tradition. Okay, then it's very important. It is a doctrine because it's connected with the validity of the Eucharist, and I think that's very that's very important. Um,
3: uh, on that same note, the the church has the, there's long been people who say the church should sanction some kind of contraception, especially in big African countries where you have problems with AIDS. Um, Nigeria, we have huge Catholic populations. Mm. Is that something that, um, again, if you go back to St. Peter's time, I mean, the whole idea of contraception didn't even exist. Mm. So, why, why again? Is well, I think there are
4: two things I'd say to that. First is that the reason why the Catholic Church is pronounced, as it were, against contraception is because it uh, the, the, the purposes of, of sexual intercourse in marriage is the uh, uh, both love between the the, the couple and also procreation. Now, if you say, it doesn't matter, uh, let's divide them, then there's no reason why why, why people who uh, you could have love in you know, all sorts of other forms, which, mm-hmm. you could, which you could legitimize. So I think the norm is, is, is that's the reason, essentially, why the, the Catholic Church has not accepted contraception. Uh, but of course, uh, as, uh, a lot of people i think would be very find it very difficult to, to live this and and i think uh, that uh, every priest has got to act as a pastor as a shepherd yeah, yeah. And, and understand people's uh, difficulties and their understandings and that's the reason why Pope Francis has called this great uh, meeting about the family and a lot of these things will be uh, will be discussed and do
3: you think that the that in the light of um, the child abuse, the sex abuse scandals that have rocked your church lately. I mean, do you think that that also questions the, the status of celibacy? I mean, that you, you know, people have a, you, you yourself say it at, at some point, I think when you're in Southampton, you know, it's pretty lonely.
4: Well, I want to say, first of all, celibacy is a given in the church. It's not a doctrine, it's a discipline. And therefore, in a sense, it could be changed. And as you say, we have Catholic priests who are, who are married, should it change? I think, the only thing I would say is that celibacy is a gift if, if, for, for, for the majority of people, priests, and, and, and gives, us, gives them a freedom. But that's not to deny and, and, and respect the, the, the Anglican clergy and the, the, the Catholic clergy who are, who are married. And uh, so uh, I think, uh, again, maybe that's something that, I think the ordination of married men might well be a possibility. In other words, say a diocese is short of priests. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember speaking to a bishop who was in the uh, out in the Pacific Islands, uh, and he had about a hundred islands, you know, and there's no way you could have the Eucharist unless he o- o- ordained a few married men. That right, seemed right. to me. Uh, so I think I'm quite sure uh, in Rome and Pope Francis would be open in certain circumstances uh, to that.
0: As part of our 30th anniversary reformations project, we invited priest and novelist Mary Elsa Bragg to re-examine Christmas through the image of Mary. Her talk touched on the way interpretations of Mary over the years have changed, revealing a fraught history of gender inequality that stretches to the present.
5: How did Mary, about whom so little is said in the Gospels, become such a complex and powerful global figure? Because in the four Gospels there are hardly any mentions of her, and some of these are contradictory. She's mentioned as mother in birth narrative, receives a message from the angel Gabriel, goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. She takes her son to the temple only 40 days after giving birth. Is at the wedding at Cana, attends her son's teaching once, is seen at the foot of the cross, and later, after the resurrection, is with the disciples at the outpouring of the Spirit. But these are only very brief mentions. If you think of the large proportion of stories in the New New Testament, these small mentions are really tiny. Really, when we look at Mary, we're looking at a woman who, like most, has been invisible, going unrecorded in our history. But unlike most women, people have tried to write her history for the last 2000 years the first stories of Mary are within Jewish culture giving her through Joseph an ancestral line back to David and linking her to women like Rahab and Ruth from the Hebrew Bible In Rome, there's a second century catacomb for St. Priscilla with a painting of Mary on the wall as a woman looking down lovingly at her babe in arms with the prophet Isaiah by her side. A strong Hebrew tradition that we're often disconnected from. A Jewish woman with a Jewish line. The early Christians believed all were equal, slave and master, male and female, in the words of St. Paul. Women held services and they taught. And theology began influenced by Greek mythology and philosophy. And as early as 180, the Greek theologian Irenaeus, who is from what we now know as Turkey, already writes of Mary as the second Eve with a non linear understanding of history. He ties past and present together for a circular redemption, the original Eve though coupled with Adam, was a virgin in paradise who disobeyed God and brought sin. Mary is a virgin on earth who obeys God and brings redemption. And there's a parallel to the original tree of life. Adam disobeys God by eating an apple. Christ, who is the second Adam, obeys God in the tree of the cross. So Christ is really human, and by walking through each stage of life, he redeems it back to paradise. But a Mary's obedient human life is also redempted. So now she's become more than a woman and more than a prophet. She is powerfully involved in the very center of creation and salvation. And soon, poetic prayers are written to her, devotional prayers. The oldest one is found in 250 on a papyrus from Egypt. A translation would be, it was in old Greek, but a translation would be, Under your mercy, we take refuge, Mother of God. Our prayers do not despise, nor our necessities, but from danger deliver us. Only pure, only blessed.
0: The Reverend Prebendary Dr Jane Tillio interviewed Mary Elsa for this event, and in this clip they explore the problems facing women as he entered the church.
6: Uh, It's interesting that the breaking new ground thing continued for me, because from 2013 to 2016, I served as one of the elected so-called senior women in the House of Bishops, and that was the House of Bishops saying, well, we'll get some women in our midst to kind of break the new ground before we actually have women bishops here. Um, that was an experience and a half. Um, I learned a great deal. And I was really struck by a kind of... Um, there, of course, among the bishops, there are many godly, good, prayerful men. Of course there are. But there's a collective kind of benign patriarchy... Which is really difficult to engage with, because the goodwill is there, but there's a kind of don't get it feeling, mm. um, and it's quite interesting trying to think how that fits with what we've been talking about, what you've so eloquently spoken of of the Virgin Mary and her place in, in Western culture. Mm. She'd have been, yes, allowed in that male space. Mm. But on their terms. But we're saying, what's it like on her terms? Mm. The Hortus conclusus, that kind of enclosed garden image, is a, a very powerful kind of statement of, mm. as you say in your piece, autonomy. And that's well, I a, think that's it's, a message
5: of hope. I think it's all... I- in the end, it all comes together because... Um, <coughs> I think it's true that... Um, you know, uh, the oppressor is as shut down as the oppressed... You know, we are all in it together, and I know, I uh, you know, a lot of men that I work with are struggling, how to you know work out, how to be a new generation being able to talk about their emotions, or the or how to older men are trying to work out how to be with their grandsons in a completely different way to the way they are allowed to be with their own sons, um, or, 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 and men and women, you know, we're having to work out how to how to partner each other in completely mm. new ways. Mm. So there's a there's a massive dialogue afoot. Yeah. But, uh, and on the ground is really interesting. When I was working in the parish on the Kilburn High Road, um, the, there was this lovely uh, man called Mr Thomas who came over from Antigua just after the Windrush, And he was brought up in the missionary schools. And I would say that he taught me how to be a priest. He'd have a bit of text ready for you every week. And he was used to hiding in a room on the ports um, and debating it and with someone keeping a watch, whistling, doing a whistle watch down below because they weren't allowed to, to meet. And uh, he was against female ordination when I first started. Um, but I remember once I visited him in a hospital um, and I have to say that um, the male priest I was working with was called Father, so they all called me Mother. And I understood that the essence of that title came from the monastic orders. Father comes from the monks, mother comes from the nuns. I understood that. But all of my associations with mother took a long time to overcome. But I did. I slowly did. And that's the thing about changing language. It does feel very strange at first. And you have very unusual associations with it. But then it comes through to a new era. You have to be able to allow the instability of change before you land in a new way. Mm. And he said to me, You know, Mother Elsa, he used to call me Mother Elsa, he said, You know, Mother Elsa, I've just realized one thing. If Mary was the mother of Jesus, and Jesus is the head of all priests, and I don't see why a woman couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yay.
0: Gene Robinson was widely known for being the first openly gay priest to be consecrated a bishop in a major Christian denomination. His appointment as Bishop of New Hampshire attracted an enormous amount of controversy, including death threats that required him to wear a bulletproof vest at his ordination. Here, in 2008, he talked about conflict, fear and his belief that the church will continue to change.
1: So why is the church so fearful of conflict? If we are at risk of anything in the church, I think, it's of becoming admirers only of Jesus and not disciples. We Christians love to gather on Sunday morning and 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 clap each other on the back and congratulate one another at how wonderful it is to be an admirer of Jesus. My goodness, didn't he say some remarkable things? Wasn't, wasn't he just simply wonderful? But Jesus doesn't need admirers. Jesus needs and wants followers, wants real disciples who are freed from the fear of death, and willing to go the places that God would have us go. Micah, the great uh, Hebrew prophet, says in response to what does God require of us, Micah says, we are required to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. But are we all not in danger of only loving justice, not doing justice. We love to talk about justice. We love to form committees about justice. We love to issue proclamations about justice. The hard thing is doing justice because it will always get us into trouble. I say to my clergy, especially at their ordinations, if you're not getting into some trouble, some real gospel trouble, then I wonder if it's the gospel you're really preaching. The church will change. There is no question about it. And what we are told over and over in Scripture, uh, it's astounding if you begin to look at it, is fear not. The words be not afraid or fear not occur all through Scripture. Indeed, it bookends Jesus' life. You have the angels announcing to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. And at the end, at every single resurrection experience, Jesus assures his disciples and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So why should we, the church, be afraid of the change that's upon us? We've changed our minds about lots of things. 150 years ago, we were still using scripture to justify slavery. Thirty years ago, in the American church, we were still not ordaining women. You're still not ordaining women bishops here in the English church. Uh, I believe it just failed in Wales as well. Isn't that right? I see some nods. So we change our minds about lots of things. We used to deny people communion uh, after they were divorced. And we would not bless their second marriages, and then, and then we began to realize, I would say, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, that we were denying people communion when they needed it the most, and we knew that those second marriages were indeed a blessing to so many couples, and so we changed our minds, despite the fact that out of Jesus's own mouth we have the words that that uh, remarriage after divorce is adultery. The the church has constantly changed its mind about things. And why not this? Jesus says this really remarkable thing. I I swear I must have read this a thousand times, and until this year, never, never had it sink in. Just before Jesus dies for us, he says to his disciples, there is so much more that I would teach you, but you cannot bear it right now. And so I will send the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. It's it's an astounding thing that that God wasn't finished with us when the canon of Scripture was closed at the end of the first century. God was not finished revealing God's self to us. The Scriptures reveal as, as much as God was able to reveal at that time, but but God didn't just sort of uh, turn his back on us and and uh, wave and wish us good luck and then leave us to our own devices. No, God sent God's spirit to be with us and to lead us into all truth. Is Is not our progress around... the the acceptance of people of color and of women and of the um, physically handicapped uh, an unending list of people that we have come to value and love, is is that not by the leading of the Holy Spirit? And it seems to me that, that the question before the church right now is, could this also be the leading of the Holy Spirit? Could this not also? The inclusion of gay and lesbian people Could it not also be the work of the Holy Spirit?
0: Thank you for listening. You can hear the full events and over 8,000 more recordings over on the Hay Player on our website. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and next week our theme explores 10 years of emerging science from the Royal Society.